Hi, this is your host, Diego Crespo. The episode you're about to listen to has completely normal audio for everyone, except for me for the first, like, three minutes, so just deal with that, and then my audio goes back to normal. It'll sound kind of like this. Thank you for listening. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. The house looks just like the one next to it, and the one next to that, and the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so obnoxious. With their three children. <laughs> and something more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Waffle Press Retrospective Show. Happy Amblin, the premier podcast detailing the works of Steven Spielberg and Adam Sandler. With me today is my co-host, Matt Naringo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I was reading something when you <laughs> threw it to me. We're here to talk about a very different kind of Spielberg film, uh, one he did not actually direct, probably. Instead, this is a Steven Spielberg Amblin production known as Poltergeist, the hit horror film directed by Tobe Hooper and would go on to haunt generations of movie fans, kind of. But if if you own a poster for Poltergeist, you know that there's a specter that looms large over Tobe Hooper's directing credit, and that is a Steven Spielberg production. All right, hold up, hold up. Sorry to derail this, people. I was trying to look up like because uh, this is like one of Spielberg's few writing credits. And I wanted to look up, like, what the other stuff was. And I ended up on his Wikipedia page. And I, uh, there's a whole section now on his Wikipedia page that is just, says praise and criticism. And it's just like, it's, it's like the worst way to discuss a filmmaker, I guess what you could say. And... It, you know, it just points out, like, everyone, it's, yeah. But then at the bottom of it, when you scroll past all of it, and you, you judge however you feel you should judge this billionaire filmmaker, uh, it then says, See also, directors with two films rated A-plus by CinemaScore, which might be the worst thing I've ever read. <laughs> Now, Poltergeist is a film I haven't actually seen that many times in my life, and certainly not in a very long time. So I wasn't sure whether or not how invested I'd be in a rewatch. But I gotta say, uh, this is a pretty great movie, and I think earns its reputation among uh classic movie fans uh yeah uh i was surprised how much i liked poltergeist on rewatch because i think the reputation of this movie is that uh it's not you know it's scary when you're a kid it's not really that scary i gotta say (laughs) at least in my opinion um but it's i was really like brought in by the story this time 
And I, in a way, I didn't expect. I was actually kind of expecting to watch this and like maybe like half watch it while taking notes really quickly. And I actually got like really invested in the movie again, which I, I just didn't expect. It had a lot of moments that like suddenly get wild out of nowhere that you're not expecting. And those didn't really do it for me, but there were like it was a lot of like really quiet and subtle moments where they don't really show you anything that actually were still pretty effective in my opinion. Uh, but I would say this is like I call this like a gateway horror film, which is like one of those I would like put this up there with like Krampus or like Gremlins or like the recent um, scary stories to tell in the dark movie. Where, like, kids can watch it, but it is, like, a movie that is, like, about the thrill of being scared. Okay, yeah, that, that, that's a good way to put it. This would make an like, excellent double feature with Krampus. Yeah, this would, this would be a pretty good... I actually have another movie that this would be a great double feature with, but we'll get to that later. Okay. But, uh, yeah, it's just... Because it, I don't think there's anything in this that will, like, be, like, so terrifying. You'll be like, oh, God, I want to leave. <laughs> Like, there's, like, maybe one moment that kind of gets really wild. But I think it's, like, this is what I always imagined, like, Goosebumps books were, like, while I was reading them. (laughs) As a kid, I was a big Goosebumps kid. And also what they almost never looked like on the TV show. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, That show was pretty disappointing to me, not to get into it, but... That, although, I mean, there, some of the episodes scared me as a kid. I had a friend, I had a friend, sorry for this, I had a friend who I showed Night of the Living Dummy 3 to, because I owned that VHS tape, which has Hayden Christensen in it. And my friend for years thought that that movie was like considered a horror classic. <laughs> Because they were so terrified by it when we watched, we were like five, so like it was ter- It's terrifying when you're like that young, but uh, yeah, and you watch it now and it's like comical. <laughs> and I mean, and those Goosebumps books never like they never really delivered. There's always that like one that like out of nowhere got like super terrifying, <laughs> <laughs> or like actually had some like stakes to it. But most of them are like. They're, they're like what a kid who like doesn't really understand the world finds scary, mm-hmm. and this this holds up a little better than that. I guess I don't know. Are you just talking about like the the concepts of like the scares or like uh, the way they're written, the 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 set pieces? Because I I find well, no, the set I, pieces in this like they they do get a little large and Spielbergian. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll just say for now. Um, but there are moments like with the little girl flying through the air that something about the way when she's sucked into the closet, I don't know. It, it's very scary. <laughs> I don't know, but I would say it's like a fun being scared. I think there's like a difference between fun scared and like actual scared. Most of this I would classify as like the fun scared for sure, but there are moments that really stuck out to me. I guess, but I feel like every scare in this, it's like you're, it's like you're, when you watch it as a kid, you're like daring yourself to keep watching, and you're like enjoying it, but it's not like one of those movies where like it's an endurance test, like when I saw Aliens as a kid, as I've mentioned, and that's a movie that's like a white knuckler all the way through when you're a child, (laughs) and like you're just terrified from like the get-go of that film, 
even when nothing's happening, it's like you're you never feel quite safe. And this movie, it's always like you're kind of excited to get scared again. Maybe I just didn't remember what happened to the family. So I was very concerned about their well-being, I guess. I guess that's the okay. thing. I really like the family dynamic in this film. Yeah. I guess I went into this remembering that this is like a, one of those horror movies where no one actually dies. Yeah, if I had remembered that, I probably would have been better off. <laughs> but or, yeah. or maybe not. Maybe this is the best way I could have rewatched it, you know? I guess, yeah, it's a, it's a lot fresher that way if you actually feel like everyone's in... That's the other thing. I, uh, it just kind of feels like... They aren't actually in danger, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm not saying, like, there's no tension. It's just you never kind of feel like... With with a Steven Spielberg production over the title, even with, like, him getting, like, a child killed in Jaws, <laughs> you, you never really believe that Spielberg's going to kill this family. Well, also just that Spielberg never really taps back into that viciousness, you know? Like, yeah. he's gotten well, also, even further when he, away from I that. would disagree. There's a viciousness in Spielberg films. Um, in some of his later stuff. Or, like, and all throughout, um, he keeps, like, having these weird moments where, like, they suddenly get really, like, crazy vicious. But even then, like, he usually sets up, like, a foil who's gonna be, like, a character that doesn't matter who's, like, gonna die if he wants to do violence. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm I'm thinking but, about some movies, and I'm like, oh wait, no, he did go there. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah <laughs> never mind. But he will rarely like set up a character that like you really enjoy, and then kill them. It happens a few times. It happens in really odd films, but it doesn't happen a ton of the time. Did something happen in 1941? Like, maybe I even missed something there. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, like I don't know. Did did someone like? No one like dies in that movie, except except um, maybe they... that farmer dude. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, Slim Pickens gets left in the middle of the ocean. We don't <laughs> see his fate. Um, did the Ferris wheel people die? Oh shit! Uh, we don't see what happened to them, huh? They might have. I don't remember. Like I just they're like the guys. That's a pretty dark joke. Where that guy is basically terrified the whole movie of being on that Ferris wheel, and then it blows up and rolls into the ocean. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, no. I mean, that's very, like, cartoony, like, violence and death, too. But still. it's It kind of feels like how uh, Tim Burton was like, eh, Batman blows people up, but I, he's like a cartoon, so he's not really killing anyone. And it's like... <laughs> Which is like, oh, okay, Tim. <laughs> but if you watch, like, Tim Burton's Mars Attacks, like, people just get, like, mowed down, like, over and over again, and, like, that's the joke. <laughs> Which I also think kind of has some DNA with, like, that's a movie where it's, like, fun, like, how kind of nuts that movie gets. Oh, that movie clearly leans into the comedy more, Mm -hmm. but you are kind of meant to be thrilled by how, like, gross it gets. Yeah. Well, this is a, speaking of comedy, this is a pretty funny movie, too, but it's, like, that casual funniness, that casual humor. It's got that that Spielberg Spielberg humor, which, well, I I would attribute some of that to Tobe Hooper, who's, honestly, a lot of his movies have, like, this humor underneath it um that's the famous story with toe hooper is like at this point is most famous for texas chainsaw massacre when he did texas chainsaw massacre part two part of the reason he did it was that he was upset that no one got like the comedy of the original (laughs) (laughs) which is like nuts when you think about because the first time anyone watches texas chainsaw you're like what the fuck is this 
And then have the director be like, no, no, I intended it as, like, a satirical film. <laughs> you're like, what? Yeah, everyone's, like, shell-shocked and clammy leaving the theater. Okay. So, oh. I think there's some there's some nice Tobe Hooper humor in this. Uh, like, not too. even the... Not to, not to like... I'm, I am going to overtake your, your point, but not to overtake your point. Because uh, I want to back mm. it up. Also, it's just, like, I, uh, I took Gene to watch it, like right after tobe hooper passed away they showed it like at uh, one of the la theaters, which one uh texas chainsaw massacre the first one uh, yeah. yeah and he had never seen it and he was just like fucking petrified because like it feels like a film made by the family in texas yeah chainsaw it feels massacre, like it, you know? it was made by like crazy people yeah. <laughs> like, it feels like you found this movie uh-huh. and like and it's like oh but for the, everyone else in the theater who had seen it like, it was easier to get into the rhythms of, like, the awkward comedy from, like, the guy in the wheelchair and stuff like that. Like, who just... Oh, yeah, Grandpa trying to club his last victim. Yeah, like, and... there are funny moments, but, like, when you're first... Or, like, the guy hitting the girl with the broom. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> but co- when you're first experiencing that, you're just, like, you know, petrified and, like, stuck to your chair and can't even, like, breathe properly. <laughs> so, like, I totally and, uh... get it. No, I saw... I, I showed Texas Chainsaw Massacre to someone... Uh, watched on like a big screen and they like they like reacted like very basically throughout most of it but i didn't realize that it was like really deeply affecting them until they get we got to the dinner scene and there's the part where like you think grandpa's just a corpse and then he like smiles for like half a second yeah. and my friend just started screaming <laughs> over and over again <laughs> What? What? <laughs> like genuinely upset. <laughs> and that's like kind of what that movie does to you in like the right setting. Oh yeah, fuck that movie's undefeatable. <laughs> yeah, I also had that with The Shining, where one time, which I have seen like dozens of times, and then one time I watched it on the big screen, and the moment they got to the the uh, room two three seven scene, when the body gets out of the tub and just starts laughing. Oh fuck. <laughs> Like, I was, like, like it suddenly hit me, like, just how scary that scene was. <laughs> and it's, like, it now, like, that scene really, really scares me. Which, like, it always did, but, like, now I'm, like, oh, my God, that's one of the most terrifying things ever. Yeah. <laughs> Poltergeist. Poltergeist, yeah, yeah. Tobe Hooper uh, did not come up with the story for the film, unlike Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or, or did he? We will get into that. There's some debate, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, I w- oh, you know what? You're, you're not wrong, but let's talk about the initial yeah. origins for two films that Steven Spielberg had in mind. Because they started mm-hmm. from one film, an idea for a film called Night Skies in the late 1970s. Well, no. We gotta go back even further. Oh, shit, do we? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, when, when Spielberg was developing Close Encounters... He originally called it Watch the Skies, which is the line that is said in um, the movie uh, The Thing from Another World, which is, you know, the, the, the original thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of that movie, they're like, watch the skies, because uh, that's the creepy ending, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and as that eventually turned into Close Encounters of the Third Kind... Which I bet you the producers were fucking pissed when they found out he changed the name from Watch the Skies to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> um, but while he was uh, working on it, um, he talked with UFOologist uh, J. Allen Hynek. And J. Uh, Allen Hynek talked about uh, the 
Kelly Hopkinsville uh, alien encounter, uh, which is about uh, which is an alleged encounter um, between a family on a farm that said they were uh, uh, basically attacked by aliens on their farm, like these little like like gr- like creatures that were aliens that were attacking them on the farm and attacking their farm animals. And Spielberg was like, "All right, I might that'll be my follow up to Close Encounters." And he wrote a treatment for Watch the Skies, which was a family basically on a farm besieged by aliens, a horror film follow-up. He, he was developing this Night Skies film for a while. Uh, he, he, he tried to bring it to Lawrence Kasdan, I believe. And Lawrence Kasdan was like, I'm too busy on Empire. We're rewriting this script every fucking day. <laughs> We're double budget. This movie's a nightmare. So he's like, all right, we won't do it. Um, he worked with John Sayles for a little bit. Um, fucking director of Eight Men Out, <laughs> and because uh, that guy had written Piranha at that point, which is well, uh, Spielberg found both John Sayles and Joe Dante, who like you will see elements. the The crazy thing about Night Sky is it's one of these like like what if unmade movies that really I think if you stop to think about it for too long, it wouldn't have been that great. <laughs> like I think there was a reason Spielberg ended up not making it. <laughs> But the elements of it birthed like like a dozen other movies, and you see the beginnings of what will become Poltergeist in Night Skies. You see the beginnings of what will become E.T. You see the beginnings of what will be Gremlins, which was produced by Spielberg. You see the beginnings of what will be Critters, which may or may not have like we we don't know how much these people may have known about this movie or also knew about the. Uh, the UFO encounter that inspired this. <laughs> uh, just like a lot of weird elements from Night Skies got lifted into other projects. My favorite like quote about the, uh, the script for Night Skies was some were calling it straw dogs with aliens. And that's just <laughs> like fucking ridiculous. Uh, just given what straw dogs is like, about and how like nihilistic that film is um yeah i have a feeling that that was just words yeah that that was like producer talk to talk it up you know and they're like oh it's like mad max fury road meets star Wars, like bullshit bullshit nonsense to sell a movie because if it was really straw dogs with aliens that would be like spiller basically going how do i tank my entire career yeah (laughs) yeah like no you know actually you know what even if it's good like no one will like it You know what? Actually, that sounds like something fucking S. Craig Zoller would do. Yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> Anyways, um, but Sale said his actual inspiration was a 1939 Western, Drums Along yeah, the drum, Mohawk. Drums Along the Mohawk. Now, I have not seen this film. Have you, Matt? Um, yeah, John Ford. I guess John Ford. Um, it's, it's a very fine movie. Okay. It's a John Ford Western. You, you get what you get. Like, I don't even mean the down talk John Ford, even though he was probably not a great guy. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he, he's a very, like, standard filmmaker. I, I don't, that's even that's even rude to say. He's... It's a, it's a John Ford movie. Just, like, you, you say he, it, you, you know what you're in for. That's it. Yeah. yeah. And... You know, you can get something out of John Ford movies if you're willing to put up with, you know, some of the other stuff that tends to come along with a lot of John Ford movies. But Night Sky's got 
pretty far along in the process before uh, they decided not to make it. Yeah, Rick Baker even made a, a actual working prototype of the lead alien. Yeah, and there's plenty of pictures you could see online and stuff like that of it, and it looks like really... I mean, it's Rick Baker. It looked fucking terrific. <laughs> there's allegedly a tape somewhere out there. Oh, um, because Spielberg was sent a videotape of it while he was working on Raiders. Ah, uh-huh. and I don't, but I don't think that tape. It might not exist, but it's never. I don't think the tape has ever leaked. Hey, you know what? Here's something interesting. Huh. The new draft of the script featured five aliens cut down from the original eleven. Um, one of them would be a good alien who was to befriend the human family's autistic son. Oh my God. So there's, there's like, the Predator. You can draw a line from the Predator to this movie. Oh, no. Because the pitch of after Fox courted Shane Black to do the reboot, he was like, well, I want to make it like Spielberg in. And now it's, it, it all connects. Was Now, hold on. Remind me real quick. Was the autistic stuff in the original, like, version of The Predator, which is a movie that, like, from what we know, was, like, like butchered like multiple times over. Yeah, it's, it was butchered in post production. Uh, the the autistic stuff was in there, but the 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 third act like twist of it being like oh, the predator wants the like the kid with autism. Yeah, like that's that's not why he wants the kid initially. There was a they they still do the the dumb like oh he's his superpower, right? That's what that is. Yeah, um, but it, it would have like led to him being able to understand predator technology. And then they would have defeated, like, an army of, like, predator mutants with, like, explosive collars. And then, because the kid would have figured it out, the ultimate predator would have been like, oh, he's the ultimate predator because he, like, outsmarted everyone. And that's why he would have wanted him instead of just, like, wanting his spine. He has autism. Yeah. It's like they thought they could just make that work and everyone was immediately like, what the fuck? Well, the the original version sounds at least a little better. Oh no, no, like it's inherently like flawed because of that like that that idea in there now, right? But like at least yeah. it would have been Although, like I don't know, it would have been easier can, to overlook, I guess. You can at least get the vibe from some of the footage in that movie that there was like at some point there was a version of the predator that like maybe treated the autism as like like very real. <laughs> Like, and honestly, you know? And then by the end, it, like, just doesn't think about it. Yeah. That kid blows up a house. <laughs> what a fucking weird movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, my favorite garbage movie of 2018. Yeah, it's, like, such trash, but it's, like... It's so watchable. That's one I don't know why. Yeah, it, it's, it's very similar to fucking Rise of Skywalker, where I'm like, oh, God, I can see the good movie in here. <laughs> like... I could see, like, something in this movie, and it's like, but it just doesn't work as it is. Yeah, like, who cares about the J.J. cut? There is, like, a legitimate Shane Black cut out there of The Predator, and I want to see oh, it. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, what the fuck, studio? That'll be something, like, 20 years from now, we might see. Oh, yeah, no, it'll be another Alien 3 thing, where, like, a decade after the movie released, everyone's like, oh, no, no, this version's good. I feel like that actually, I, I used to joke, like, that now, like, you can't really do it because of all the special effects like, that you would have to finish. But now it seems like there might really be a Snyder Cut coming out. Yeah, so... <laughs> like, that keeps getting, like, hinted at. And 
you know, I have to, I have to imagine. Maybe I'm just being too optimistic, but maybe it'll be easier to do special effects in the future. Like, and maybe you could finish them a lot quicker and cheaper. Yeah, I mean, or you could just maybe, or we'll all be in in debt to major corporations and use the slave labor <laughs> to finish all these movies. Isn't that what they did for Sonic the Hedgehog? Hey. Yeah, Night Sky's didn't happen. It didn't happen. Inspired a bunch of stuff. Uh, let's see, what else? According to legend, Spielberg was having a bad day, and he was like, I wish I had a friend. And that's when he kind of started thinking about the idea of, like, what if the alien was friendly? Which apparently was an element in the earlier Night Sky script that there would be one friendly alien. Oh, that's right, that's right. And so Spielberg was like, eh, let's just do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, and um, um, this is when Spielberg... When when Night Skies was still happening, Spielberg had hired Tobe Hooper to initially direct, right? He he talked to him at one point. He was he was meeting with him. I believe he met with a few directors, but at some point he was developing it with Tobe Hooper. And Tobe Hooper, according to Tobe Hooper, he suggested turning the elements of Night Skies into a haunted house movie. And Hooper, he's he's not like confined by like. Genre. I don't think people like, uh, apart from like being like a fantastical like horror director, like he can kind of do like anything and everything. You know, it's kind of like one of his strengths. Like Spielberg, they're not um, they're not easy to fit into a box. Apart from like smaller flourishes with uh, their characters yeah. and like. Style. Well, Tobe Hooper was never really given that opportunity to like like a lot of horror directors from that era. Like, once he was known as the horror guy, he was never given, like, that much of a chance to make non-horror films. Yeah. So anything he did, like, before and after, I mean, yeah, yeah, like, after Texas Chainsaw, I mean, um, it's all just, like, you can see him trying to make, here's my science fiction film, but it's a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And here's my, like, kids, like, adventure film, but it's a horror movie. You can like you can feel the different things he's trying to do, but it's kind of trapped with having to do horror films. Yeah, and then like you know, and it's a shame because he never really got out of that rut, and he probably because you know his first movie is like a non-horror film that was like a weird like psychedelic independent film, and like everyone like like it wasn't like I don't even think you can get it anywhere these days called eggshells. I haven't um, seen it. Well, you you can get it with the three disc Blu-ray edition of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two. <laughs> That's wow. Which which is not the version I have, so I can't watch it. <laughs> is that one but, of those ones uh, like a Blu-ray that costs like a hundred dollars? It might be. I don't know. I I got like when Shout Factory or Scream Factory did Texas Chainsaw Two. I got it oh, okay, on Blu-ray. Okay. Yeah, they do good work. So I have that version. Yeah, yeah. They they get movies that really don't deserve to be on Blu-ray and put them on Blu-ray, and I have to respect that. Yeah, I think they just did, like, Pumpkinhead 2 or something. Oh, God. Pumpkinhead 2 is so bad. I've only seen the first one, and I feel like I'm not missing out, so. Pumpkinhead, the first Pumpkinhead is, like, pretty solid. <laughs> Did I just lose you? No, no, no. I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, I was trying to think of something else to, to top off there. But no, no, it's, yeah, it's a good movie. First Pumpkinhead's very solid. And it, it, Stan Winston directed it, right? Yeah, amazing atmosphere. Like, which is 
something that, that this movie tends to have too. And it's like, like starker horror elements. Like once it really gets going, it's like really creepy and like kind of nasty when it needs to be, which I really appreciated, especially with like the backyard, like pool stuff. It's like really <laughs> dirty. Like I actually felt like icky watching it, which is not something I usually feel watching horror movies. Yeah. Like just feeling like that mud. Like, I could feel it, like, under my fingernails, and I was like, damn, this is... Like, I was really into it on this rewatch. Uh, oh, same. Uh, sh- um, should we give a quick synopsis, I guess? Um, well, I guess we could just give the setup, which is... It's honestly a very simple... Like, here's the pitch. Like, if you walk into the studio, and be like, here's what I want to do. You basically go, what if he did the haunting, but it's in the suburbs? <laughs> And that's kind of it. Yeah, no. Uh, recently on these episodes, we've been talking about how, like, sometimes the best films, like the classics, the Stone Cold classics, tend to keep it simple. This one does exactly the same thing. It's a family that gets haunted, and they discover why at the end. The end. <laughs> yeah, but it's also... It's like it takes that premise of like the haunting in the suburbs and totally plays it out the way it should. Like it doesn't just uh, like skim on it, you know? Yeah, I, th- I think some of the problems with like uh, lesser versions of these films is that you can always kind of tell when they're trying to be like either a franchise starter or they're like held back a little bit by a budget or time or something. Poltergeist amps it up to 11 when it needs to. Like, there's not a single, like... Like, where it ends up going, with the set pieces especially, you're never like, well, they could have done this or this. Like, no, it kind of does it all. <laughs> there's a little bit... There's a couple moments of that in here. Like, I think there's, like, a thing kind of holding this movie back from being, like, truly great. You know, like, one where I'd be like, oh, this is a great... This is, a, like, a classic film. But not not much. Yeah. Uh and I would just say, like, it, you also feel movies where, like, they have that great setup, and then they don't really know what to do with it. You see that a lot. Um, I would point to, like, I mean, not to drag this movie, but um, I just saw Underwater, uh, which I didn't hate. I liked the movie, and I would recommend it. It's a good one to watch, like, late at night. Um, I think it's a solid little horror film, but it's also kind of, they have a, they had a really good setup. And a lot of, like, interesting ideas, and they just didn't really know how to make them all come together. <laughs> there was no follow-through on the ideas of it, except in, like, a very obvious way. Whereas here, it, it, it ends on kind of an obvious note, and it's but it still feels like we took a journey that was worth it. I agree. <laughs> all right. Uh, listen to the episode I did with it with... Or on that movie with uh, Gene and Richard Newby, where I liked it more than Matt, but would agree that the thematic ideas kind of needed a little bit of work. But solid creature feature. We can both agree that uh, Kristen Stewart needs to fight more monsters in movies, though. Yeah, Kristen Stewart for sure. Uh, Jessica Henwick is really good in that, too. I did not expect her to make it as long as she did. There is a... It, that, that Honestly, that supporting cast and T.J. Miller... <laughs> <laughs> Like, not him, but <laughs> they're all very good. And I like, like, you ended up liking those characters. Yeah, like, I... Which is what I think helps yeah. uh, in a movie like that. And this movie, I would say, too, you end up liking this family a lot. 
Yeah, uh, but, I will say that there is no moment as utterly vicious as the T.J. Miller death spoiler in Underwater, which I greatly appreciated. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a very good moment. Oh yeah, I, I like applauded in the theater to myself, but <laughs> whatever. A lot of a uh, lot of violent deaths in that film, but that one was oddly satisfying for reasons maybe we shouldn't go into. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> But yeah, no, the uh, the cast in this film, uh, which I had forgotten, Craig T. Nelson's the dad in this movie. Yeah. I love Craig T. Nelson. Fucking coach. <laughs> uh, Joe Beth Williams as, as his wife, Diane. Uh, yeah. Dominique Dunn as the, the eldest daughter. Oliver Robbins as Robbie. And Heather O'Rourke as Carol, the, uh, the little girl who goes in the television. Yes. And that's like the image everyone knows, of course, from this movie, because it's like, how is that not an iconic image? It's like, well, it's the opening of the movie too. Well, also, that it's all you need to show. You just show that scene, and like, all right, you're in. Yeah, because <laughs> it's such an and it's such an odd opening too, to be honest. No, I because th- it's like, it's just like this creepy opening, and then it's like, hey, here are the here are the suburbs. Yeah, it's uh. It's it's almost like uh, I think we talked about it a little bit in the Blade Runner episode where like you mentioned how the editing is a little weird and then like it eventually finds like rhythms in the weirdness. This opening is just weird. <laughs> like yeah, no, I think but this this opening it sets up. I think what a, a thing that this movie does really well is that it sets up a mystery without you even realizing there's a mystery for most of the film. Like you, like it's it, it. You think there's a problem to be solved, but there's also this like mystery plot underneath it that you don't realize you're solving the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And that opening is really that's what's really being set up there, which is like you know you kind of forget the basic question of like why is this little girl talking to the television, <laughs> which is really what we should be asking instead of what we end up asking for as a film, which is like how do we how do we save this little girl from what's happening? Um, is this in California? It's like Orange County, California, right? Yeah. It's a like the be- community. The beginnings of the cookie-cutter housing. Yeah. place called Cuesta Verde, which is not a real place. Hey. <laughs> well, it sounds like a fake place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh... But goddamn, you know, this is one of those things... Oh, shit. Hold on. My mic fell over. You're going to get some bad audio for a moment. That's okay. But... At least I'll be able to tell. All right. All right, I think it's I think I'm good now. Mm-hmm. Um you get I I think a lot of people find like the suburbs like this oddly comforting. And I grew up in a suburb, um but there was like my suburb had like existed for a little bit by the time I lived there. And, like, just over the hill, there was, like, the new suburb they built. And it's, like, the most... Those suburbs that they were building are, like, the most depressing shit where every house looks the same. And they just cut out, like, all the trees and everything. (laughs) It's just, like, this hole. But, like, at the beginning, it's a very welcoming suburb. Uh... Like, it's so odd. This movie is very, like, (laughs) anti-suburb. And then the next, the, the parent film to this, E.T., is like kind of like, hey, suburbs are fun. Yeah, it, it's a great, uh, like, 
or not even great, just like interesting juxtaposition between the two. Uh, and let me—I think that's where you can see the differences, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And let me just say, in California, there are not really so many suburbs anymore, as there are like starting to be like condominiums and like apartment complexes. Yeah, um, yeah. But the suburbs that I'm familiar with are the ones that look like this. Every house is very similar. You can't paint over over the the original coat of paint unless you get like a permit from the city or something like that. Good or, Christ. Yeah, like it's fucking crazy how some of these are. Um for Lethal Weapon fans, Palos Verdes, uh that I actually know that community and you cannot change like anything in your house. Uh otherwise you'll get like a fine. Good and shit Lord. like that. So um uh, it's always the big government coming down <laughs> on the little guy. <laughs> it's it's just ridiculous. Um so yeah, yeah I I'm, I'm with you. I'm not uh I'm not crazy about this preordained uh housing shit. <laughs> there, someone remind me. I'm just throwing this out there for anyone listening. <laughs> There's some children's book about a guy who keeps like painting his house ridiculous color, <laughs> and he's like pissing off all his neighbors. I just remembered it. I don't remember what the name of that book is. Please message me the name <laughs> of that book if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Because I want to, I want to, I want to read it again. <laughs> um, I really love the uh, the camaraderie they have around the neighborhood. Like it's nothing like in depth, but we see a lot of like fun banter back and forth with people in the beginning, and like the changing of the television channels, like that little war they got going on. I don't know. I just I thought it was fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, you get the you get now you get the like the mix of the there's like camaraderie, and then there's also the tension that comes with. Owning property. <laughs> There's such a weird, like, almost satirical layer underneath this movie. I don't think it ever goes full satire, but you can feel something there, you know? Yeah, it, uh, it feels more Spielberg than Hooper in that aspect, for sure. Like, Ho- Hooper, I think, uh, if this was, like, full-blown Tobe Hooper, then maybe it would have been a little, like, more biting I guess, uh, and not even like I'm not not dissing Tobe Hooper because I, I'm a huge fan of his work. Just uh, I think it's it's a little more restrained here. Some fucking guy following me on Twitter. Is it like a Nazi fucking guy? No, like I I I like right before coming on, I tweeted something about South Park, and there's a guy who follows me and he's like your first mistake is assuming that anyone who disagrees with you here is a reactionary <laughs> and and I'm, I don't even know what I don't know what point he's trying to make uh, this is why I don't follow people <laughs> but people don't like it when I'm you're so mean fucking, South Park I'm so fucking reluctant to follow anyone back on Twitter even people that like I I enjoy that like are real nice and like comment on things all the time, <laughs> and I just don't follow them back. I like the DC fans that follow me. I don't follow Abby Phelps, and she sends me nice things a lot. Abby Phelps is the best. That's why. You know what? Leave this in. I'm right in this moment. I'm following Abby. Oh, okay. You didn't follow Abby. Yeah, I just, I'm so, like, I, I, I have so much where I don't want to follow someone and then, like, a weekend realize, like, oh, I don't like this person, actually. <laughs> but it's just, Abby's been fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nicest thing you've ever said about someone on this show. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, you just you you know you've been in that thing where like you end up like maybe talking to someone and then realizing like oh actually like they have really fucked up beliefs that I've had to go in private a couple great. times yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and then you kind of just mute someone quietly. <laughs> I used to do that, and then sometimes it got a little intense, and I was like oh shit, I, I you're just you shouldn't be online. <laughs> You muted people. How would it get intense? I, I, we don't need to talk about it right now. We should go back to nights, guys. Okay, this is this is relevant because we're talking about uh, the tension between the two families. <laughs> I, I've just had to, to block some people and and make my account private a couple times. Just no biggie. Oh yeah, yeah, that happens every now and then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, um, you piss someone off because you're like a couple years ago saying what Birdman this or Man of Steel that and now you're like I don't care about that stuff anymore and then they still find it and then they start emailing you <laughs> so I've only seriously ever like had like I've blocked people like all the time but I've only ever had one where like someone I've interacted with I ended up blocking it's only ever happened once oh wow and that's that but, that, but that's also like I said because I just I don't follow people back on on Twitter. It's probably for the best. Yeah, it's just, it's, you know. Yeah. It's, Twitter's a bad place. And I'd like, I like to think positively about people. I don't want to realize that people are actually bad sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Billy Eilish is doing the James Bond song? Oh. Oh, what a minute. What? All right. I actually have no strong opinions on Billie Eilish. Yeah, yeah, no. I, she's, she's a kid. I don't care. I had a friend who was, like, very angry about Billie Eilish. Oh, why? He was a child. And they it's were just, like, yelling child. at me. And they were, like, yelling at me, like, I hate Billie Eilish. And I was like, all right. Like, I don't even know enough <laughs> about him to be like, yeah. Like, I couldn't even defend Billie Eilish if I wanted I to. I thought Billie Eilish was a man. I don't know why. And I felt bad when I found out it was a young woman. Hey, now. Yeah, so I was like, oh. That happens sometimes. Yeah, I was like, whoops. But either way, it's a child. Like, how do you have strong opinions about a child? I get so annoyed when I'm, like, looking up, like, I'm trying to, like, read, like, older science fiction. And I'll see an author's name, and it'll be, like, Carol. And I'll be like, oh, a female author. Because, like, they never get through back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> And then you click on it, and it's like a dude named Carol, and you're like, fuck. <laughs> that annoys me so much. All right, let, let, let's, let's go back uh, to uh, the movie. But right in this opening, we are setting up the, like, the weird science that goes into ghosts in this film. Yeah, there's almost like uh, a, there's, there's this, like, connective tissue between, like, the unknown quantities of technology of the time. That, like, to me, I find really fascinating, you know, like, this is the era that, like, Tron was born into, so people were like, computers! Yeah. Oh, God, this is the same year as Tron. Yeah, so it's the same, totally the same vibe. I don't know if you ever, that popped into your head at all, or anything like that. I mean, televisions and computers are different, but, you know, technology... I actually thought of a film from, like, the year before, The Scanners. I've never which, seen uh... Scanners. Oh, God, you should watch Scanners. Okay. I have, it's however, like seen nine... the hit film uh, from Michael Crichton, Lookers. What? Lookers. <laughs> I've never heard of Lookers. Looker, isn't that isn't that the movie? Lookers. Yeah. Or or Looker. Is this like a? Is this a joke? No, no, no. This is real. I'm not getting. No, no, no. This is real. There's a mo- there's a movie called Lookers by Michael Crichton. Yeah. 
What is this? It's like it's just Halloween three. What are you saying to me? No, 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 no. hang on, hang on. It's I, I'm I'm making sure I got the title right. Michael, right? This is yeah. I'm I'm slightly infuriated by whatever. No, no, no. Looker, Michael Crichton, released 1981 to science fiction horror film. Oh my god, I've never seen Looker. Oh, it's I've never even heard of Looker. It's fine, but it's got like great production design, and it's it's very similar to Halloween three. Oh, I like that poster. Yeah, it's a good poster. Uh, um, I like that poster. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I was making a point about Scanner. Uh, well, similar weird science involving technology. That's how I got Looker. Uh, I'd recommend it. I, I'll release an episode I did with Kale uh, soon. But Matt, what is your point about Scanners? Well, I was making uh, Scanners and a lot of uh, Cronenberg's, including Videodrome from this era, is kind of like the weird, like, the the oh fuck! I have seen scanners. Of... What? I have seen scanners. I totally forgot. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh my god! No, I like scanners. Why did I think I did not see scanners? Yeah. So remember, there's the part in the movie where he scans the computer with his scanning powers. Yeah, and it's just like, what is? And this? it's like, and it's like, oh wow! In 1981, they're already going like the computer is like a brain. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, oh, this technology is like we're we're very close to like merging with technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is this is like Poltergeist like takes it to another level where it's like actually technology can bridge the gap between life and death. <laughs> <laughs> and it also kind of is like Spielberg's uh it's it's like close encounters where although you can definitely feel more invested in close encounters because you can tell he really believes in UFOs, <laughs> whereas I'm not sure how he feels about ghosts. Where like Close Encounters is very much like here's this here's this what an imagined scientific approach to the UFO situation. And this movie gets like very into like the science of the afterlife, <laughs> if it is a real thing. I'm still just reeling from the scanners thing. I'm so sorry. But like, yeah, uh, I don't know how. What? What? What is that? Yeah, my bad. Um, huh. The doctor in Scanners is named Doctor Ruth. <laughs> that lead actor like almost sinks that movie though, and that's a really good movie. Oh yeah, yeah. He's not. Uh, he is very not good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's like, and it's so bad that he's put up against I Michael Ironside, who's like at eleven. I know. Michael Ironside's so fucking good, like, in everything. He's in Terminator Salvation, and every time he's on screen, you're like, oh, fuck yeah. Oh, my God. Ugh. Why'd they put him in that? Because they needed to elevate that movie. Yeah, that's like uh, X-Men First Class putting him in as the uh, captain on the one boat. Instead of making him, like, fucking someone. Yeah, instead of doing anything with him. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways... That's that's how useless. Yeah, we're we're letting him down. Um, I don't know what, what the fuck. Yeah, well, they sucked his brains out. I love that. <laughs> we're going all over the place, but this is actually kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I kind of like this movie. Yeah. Would you say it goes all over the place? Um, no, but there's a lot in it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I would agree with that. This movie's swinging for the fences a lot. Uh-huh. And I would say it 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 also kind of knocks some stuff out of the park to to not mix metaphors but to expand them. 
much like this film, expanded my appreciation of both Tobe Hooper and Steven Spielberg. Yep. I will say the one thing that like really gets you invested in this family really quick is the the whole like the bird just died, <laughs> where they have to bury the bird in the backyard. Wait, was that a which bird? may or may not? I thought it was a fish. Why did I think it was a fish? She goes at the end of it when she's like she's like all sad, like the girl, little girl sad, burying it, like giving it stuff where it's like for when he's lonely and when he's tired. And then at the like after they bury it, she goes like, "Can I have a goldfish now?" There you go. That's why the fuck. Did, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, that's very touching, moment. and like you actually feel that, you know. I mean, I, did you? It's very relatable. Like you can remember, like when you had to bury a goldfish or something like yeah, that. Yeah, did, did you have you, fish like... when you were a kid? Yeah, and they all died. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. No, I, we did not. I had uh, yeah. I I had tadpoles, and they all died like one by one over the course of a week, and I was so sad. Uh... Um, so that one, I was like, oh, like that, that kind of brought me back for a second. I have maybe like one of the most traumatizing ones. Uh, all right. <laughs> I, I had hamsters no. a lot. Um, and hamsters like that, I, I, you know, um, they passed away a lot of them and they never lived long and it's always just sad. But the one, one time, um, one of the hamsters gave birth, which we weren't expecting. So we had baby hamsters, no. and we're taking care of them. And one night, someone left the door open to the room where they were in, and the cat got no. them. No. Yeah, that was a pretty rough. That was a pretty rough one. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought so I was I'm leaving be, out like, the mom de- I'm gonna... ate them or something, but no, no, I, I'm leaving out the details. Yeah, thanks. But uh, yeah, it's like oh, that was that was a rough time. Oh, I'm sorry. And then I think I had one more hamster after that that also got killed by the cats, and then I was like, I'm never having another hamster. Like, that was, like, the line. Uh-huh. No, one of the... Uh, not not nearly as bad, but, like, one of the tadpoles, like... It's because some of them just died, like, in the water, right? Like, I don't know what happened. One of them jumped out because it was becoming a frog, but it couldn't, it couldn't uh, make it back in, so it was just, like, flat and white, and, like, I'll never forget that image. Yeah, that's, that's pretty depressing. Yeah, I was, I was a heartbroken, but... No, such is the circle of life, I guess. Oh yeah, life is this wonderful thing. Yeah, and death is certain. Yeah. <laughs> See, this movie posits that if there is an afterlife, science would have found it by now, and we haven't found it by now. <laughs> so guess what, folks? <laughs> well, hey, you know what? You never know. Yeah, you you don't, and then when you die, you might not know anything anymore. Yep. So. In a way, that's kind of a positive message to take away from the film. Sure. <laughs> yeah, infinite nothingness, that's fine. Infinite nothingness, but, you know, we're all we got. Here's something Here's something I want people to know. You think you're fine with it until you almost die. <laughs> and then you realize you are very much not fine with it. Oh, here's an idea. Alright, so a premise where someone discovers that there is no afterlife, there's nothing before, there's nothing after, where all that is, and so they try to create an afterlife. Hey. There you go. There's there's an interesting idea. I'm writing that down. But you can't prove a negative, that's the only problem. (laughs) You're like, well, like, even even if you went, like, I have evidence that there is, in fact, no afterlife. They'd be like, well, maybe it's just beyond science. You know those people. Of course, of course. There's that movie. What's that movie where they prove there is an afterlife and people just start, like, jumping off buildings? Oh, I don't know. What the fuck? (laughs) 
There was some movie, it's like a couple years ago, I can't remember its name. It had like Robert Redford in it or something. That sounds like a pretty compelling idea, but like, I've never heard of it, so it clearly didn't like... I think I fell asleep watching it, but um, I'm not sure if it, I'm not even sure if it was bad. I just like, I remember being like, oh, all right, that's an interesting setup. (laughs) And yeah, uh, because that's, you know, that would, like, it's, if there is an afterlife, it's probably a good thing we can't discover it. Because then, like, no one would, no one would want to be here. Yeah, because then they would be like, what the fuck are we even doing here? (laughs) It's called The Discovery. Oh, is that the real title? Yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's called The Discovery. Um, it was made in 2017. Mm. An interviewer questions Thomas Harbour, Robert Redford, the man who scientifically proved the existence of an afterlife, a discovery that has led to an extremely high suicide rate. Jesus. It's also got Jason um, Siegel in it. Oh my god, I forget about him. And Rooney Mara, how the fuck? What the fuck? Where has she been? Yeah. Oh god, I read the saddest thing about her, where she was like, um, they they were like, hey, um, why weren't you in the Dragon Tattoo sequel? And she was like, they didn't even ask me. Oh. And she was like, I was ready to do it. I was expect when I heard they were making it, I was like waiting for the call, and then I just found out they had cast someone else. Oh. That's a shame. She's a good actress. She's so good. I don't know if you remember when the Sony leaks came out, but she was like, uh, like, like she emailed them like constantly being like, hey, like just letting everyone know, like, I'm still really interested. I really care about this character and I'm really proud of the work we did. And I'm really excited to come back on board for the sequel eventually. Uh... Just checking in on everyone and stuff like that. And like, that's heartbreaking, which is not also completely unrelated because the remake of Poltergeist was a Sony production. <laughs> Hey, Sony! <laughs> How to fail upwards in Hollywood. Yeah. It might actually not be a Sony production, but I'm just gonna... I'm, I'm gonna leave that in, so... Okay! <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck made the original? Poltergeist? Um, MGMUA. Yeah. Alright, because that was the thing, because it was like, Spielberg wanted to make this, and then Universal, was or whoever produced E.T., E.T.'s one of those weird ones where, like, I believe he started making it with another studio, and then they, like, were, like, halfway through, were like, no, we're not going to actually release this. And then it it ended up at Universal. So I don't know if it was Universal or Columbia that, like, pulled the plug. Or, like, uh, but they were the ones who were like, hey, nope, Spielberg, you're under contract. you got to make a movie for us. You can't make Poltergeist. And then he still kind of did anyways, potentially. And then he was like, I'll produce it and also be on set every day the whole time. No, no, no. According to, let me see. Co-producer Frank Marshall told the Los Angeles Times that the creative force of the movie was Steven. Tobe was the director and was on the set every day. But Steven did the design for every storyboard and he was on the set every day. Except for the three days when he was in Hawaii with Lucas, as in George Lucas. And I don't know why, I was just like, oh, but those three days, like, those were important to to, to sing out. Could just say most of the days. I'd say every day except the three days in Hawaii with George Lucas. Yeah, Let's just remind you that Steven Spielberg's the most successful director of all time. Yeah, (laughs) I guess. Just gonna casually throw that out there. I guess so. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, however, Hooper also stated that he did fully half of the storyboards, which mm. is like 60% of the time, every time kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. And again, not, not trying to diminish anyone's work because I think this is a pretty clear, like, instance of collaboration across the board because you can yeah. see, like, bits and pieces of both. And um, the Hollywood Reporter also printed an open letter from Spielberg to, to Tobe Hooper during the week of the film's release in 1982. I'm going to read it right now. Mm-hmm. Regrettably, some of the press has misunderstood our rather unique creative relationship, which you and I shared throughout the making of Poltergeist. I enjoyed your openness and allowing me as a writer and a producer a wide berth of creative involvement, just as I know you were happy with the freedom you had to direct Poltergeist so wonderfully. Through the screenplay, you accepted a vision of this very intense movie from the start, and as the director, you delivered the goods. You performed responsibly and professionally throughout, and I wish you great success on your next project. End quote. So I don't like... You know, it it just seems like it was amicable and never seemed like there was any bad blood or anything like that. So It's hard to tell because the sad thing is, ultimately, no matter what the case was, Tobe Hooper ultimately ends up losing. Because in the in everyone's mind, either it was Spielberg's film or that it was Spielberg working with Tobe. Like, no matter how people slice it, they seem to view Spielberg as the dominating force. Which is unfortunate. So, it, I mean, after this, fucking Tobe Hooper goes to work for Canon Films. Yeah. I mean, it's not like this movie got him better. Which, like, the dream probably was, oh, I'll work with Spielberg and this will be my end to the studio system. I mean, we don't know. Maybe, maybe Tobe Hooper did not think that way. But, you would, you know... Or maybe he didn't even want it, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's a very unfortunate truth that, like, just history speaks for itself sometimes, you know? Like, Spielberg went on to be Spielberg, and Tobe Hooper made Life Force, which, again, we are fans of, but... Yeah, you know, we're well, it's the thing where he makes Life Force after this, he makes Invaders from Mars, and he makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, which are movies I, I love. I love all three of those movies, but they all bomb. They they all flop at the box office, and it's just like he his career never. This is kind of the peak of his career in terms of success. Yeah, and then and so it's hard to like not imagine there was at least some tension maybe, and also he never he never uh, worked with Spielberg again. Mm-hmm. Where he, this is like the first of the steven spielberg presents movies which will start to happen with stuff like gremlins it'll happen more with like robert zemeckis movies um where it's like spielberg's on the poster but it's actually directed by someone else yeah and other directors seem to be able to find their space in it more and toe hooper apparently didn't it, it just seems like kind of came out to uh everyone thinking spielberg had at least a very dominating hand in the movie and if I was honestly it's not hard to imagine because it's like if I was if I was Tobe Hooper and I'm you know my career's not exactly taking off because Hollywood's prejudice against horror filmmakers especially of that era yeah and you're like oh the most successful director in Hollywood of that time wants me to direct his new movie also, he's going to be on set most of the time. Of course I'm going to ask him his opinion. <laughs> I want the movie to work. 
And clearly this guy knows what he's doing. So, like, it's hard not to imagine that, like, it probably felt fine during the production, and then maybe, like, no one could see how the world was going to see it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it, unfortunately, because then also there's like there's like legal problems where I think the uh, Hooper had to get a certain amount of money through the DGA because of Spielberg's involvement. And it's also like the thing where it's like the studio very clearly wanted to be like we have a Spielberg movie, and they didn't really give a shit about Toe Hooper. Yeah. And it was like we can't advertise that this is from the guy who did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Because that'll, like, probably, like, as, as, you know, that movie at that time had been recognized as, like, a classic. It's the reason Spielberg hired him. But it's also a movie where it's, like, it's a very controversial film. Yeah. It, uh, it wouldn't have exactly brought in, like, the mass audience, I guess. Yeah. I mean, clearly, because that's exactly what happens on every other Toe Hooper film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where it's, like, Toe Hooper, the guy who did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it's, like, oh, I'll, I, sure, I'll pay however much a movie ticket was to see a movie that will ruin my weekend <laughs> which unfortunately like none of his other films really are yeah like it's, uh, it's, it's although Texas Chainsaw one. Mass- Massacre 2 does get pretty gnarly but <laughs> I mean like the vibe of that film the tone is so different already you know like yeah. it, it fucks you up in like a it, it's gonna sound weird like in a fun way cause like it's a comedy yeah so yeah it is and I just that's also a problem where like studios never know how to advertise horror comedies mm-hmm. Um, but this is also I mentioned that this movie would be a good double feature with another movie uh, that movie would be The Thing from Another World from 1951 um, which is credited as being directed by Christian Nibby <laughs> N-Y-B-Y I, I don't know how to say that last I think, name I think you actually got it right Christian no you know what Christian Nibby I remember because there's a John Carpenter interview whenever he talks about uh, his remake of The Thing, he, he brings it up. But that movie was produced by Howard Hawks, and it feels very much like a Howard Hawks movie. And the legend about that one is kind of like Howard Hawks was like, I want to make a science fiction movie, but they'll never let me make a science fiction horror movie. So I'll kind of like ghost direct The Thing from Another World. And of course the director says, like, no, no, I didn't do that, but... Uh, of course I listened to Howard Hawks he was my mentor <laughs> I wanted I wanted to make a movie as good as him so of course it feels like a Howard Hawks movie and then we and people when people talk about the thing from another world they go Howard Hawks is the thing from another world mm. and people have a difficult time pronouncing Christian Nivey's last name <laughs> uh, this is a, it's an odd odd uh Similarity. Yeah, if I could just read one last quote from uh, director Mick Garris, who was also a publicist on uh, the original Poltergeist and former film journalist uh, before he became a filmmaker. He, uh, after Hooper's passing in August of 2017, Mick Garris came to Hooper's defense on his podcast, uh, Postmortem. Tobe was always calling action and cut. Tobe had been deeply involved in all the pre-production and everything, but Steven is a guy who will come in and call the shots. And so you're on your first studio film, hired by Steven Spielberg, who is enthusiastically involved in this movie. Are you going to say, stop that, let me do this? Which Tobe did. Tobe was a terrific filmmaker. I don't think it's that Steven was controlling. I think it was Steven 
that wasn't enthusiastic and nobody was there to protect Tobe. But all the pre-production was done by Tobe. Tobe was there throughout. Tobe's vision is very much realized there. And Tobe got credit because he deserved the credit, including what Steven Spielberg had said. And uh, yes, Steven Spielberg was very much involved, but it's a Tobe Hooper film. So that's kind of just a way of saying it, it was both of them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> of course. Like, it's that thing where, like, you kind of want to, like, you want a hero and villain of the story. Mm-hmm. And it's like, maybe they both kind of did it. And it's just, it's unfortunate that you want to go back in time and be like, hey, <laughs> doesn't matter. They're both talented guys. Like, that's great. But the problem is that the stink of it just, it, it, like, it, it, Tobe Hooper never got that studio opportunity again. Yeah. And that's a real shame. Kind of a downer I mean, part of the, got to make... this discussion because it's such a yeah. great film and great filmmaker. Well, how many, how many horror icons from that era like never got out of it? You know, yeah. I mean, we, obviously, whenever we talk about uh, Carpenter film around Halloween, that's the big discussion. He never really got to break free of yeah. the confinement, and now like his Twitter handle is at the Horror Master. You know. It's you know you just wish that he like want that alternate world where like Carpenter directed Pincushion or whatever that movie was <laughs> or like or when he he almost I, according to rumor he almost did like um, Tombstone yeah he got close because of uh, which, a which Kurt Russell too mm, which would have been like perfect for like all right now Carpenter is gonna do like bigger films. Mm. And instead, the 90s, it's like, hey, we need someone to do a remake of Village of the Damned. <laughs> and it's like, let's get John Carpenter. Yeah, and honestly, not not to get all, like, all like uh, existential crisis here, but like, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that Jordan Peele can start doing other things. Because I know he wants to do things like that are different. Like he said, eventually, he wants to basically fund his own Star Wars, you know? Like, mm-hmm. he, he wants to be able to break out of that. And uh, right now, it doesn't look like there's any reason to be concerned about him not being able to do that. Um, but it is, like, as we're talking about this, I'm like, oh, shit, like, that still happens to people, you know? Yeah, I think it's easier today to get out of that box, but it certainly still happens. Yeah, I mean, like, James Wan's finally, like, out of it, even though he's never, like, he, he horror will always be his first love, he said. But he's he's also now able to do fucking Aquaman, <laughs> which is... Mm-hmm. Great. What's the story about like Rob Zombie? I think he's the one who's like he's oh, always yeah, wanted to make yeah. a gra- he wants to make a Groucho Marx movie. Yeah, and I think he, he but said, like, like no one finally that he's uh like if it happens it happens but it's he's basically stopped putting like he stopped hedging his bets on that one. That's a shame because it's like you want to see that guy like what he'll do outside of horror. Yeah, because I'm a Rob Zombie fan and I understand why other people aren't. But it's but the the one problem with his horror films is that they're all kind of a very similar note. Uh huh. Yeah. And it's like at least like I mean even when we're we're talking about like we're lamenting Carpenter's choices, but it's like all his films at least kind of felt different. Yeah, they they might have like a similar vibe during like certain aspects of them or like similar scores like like um, musically, but like Big Trouble in Little China and The Thing coming from the same filmmakers pretty spectacular you know like that's not that's not normally how that works it's just like you hope that it'll be different for upcoming filmmakers 
Like, I think Jordan Peele, yeah. if there's a guy who's going to break out of it, it's going to be Jordan Peele. Yeah, I mean, once you get that Oscar nomination for your first movie, it, it kind of opens up a lot of doors. Yeah. I just worry that he's, that. I mean, like, you know, I, I think Us is better than Get Out, frankly. Um, but I love both those movies. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you, you worry that maybe the way the studio, because, like, it, Us did not get the critical reception that Get Out did. Yeah. Like, it was not an awards contender, blah, blah, blah. Whatever, fuck the system. But, like, you worry that that might get him trapped a little bit. And, of course, he's, like, doing, like, Twilight Zone, which I love that the Twilight Zone, the first one, that they, the one they released online for free, the first episode, that wasn't, like, a straight horror episode. So I'm going to be like, look, there, it can be more than just that, because I feel like that's what... He can do, like, mind-bending stories, then they don't just have to be horror. I actually didn't see that Twilight Zone, so... Oh, it's it's fine. It's very good. Oh, okay. All right. It's with uh, Kamel Nanjiani. Oh, yeah, it's a good actor. Who's in the... He's in the Eternals, right? Oh, yeah, he got shredded, and everyone's like, holy shit. And he's like, yeah, yeah. because they paid for me to do this. This isn't normal. <laughs> At least he's honest about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I appreciate about him. Like, on his Instagram post, he was showing off, but he was also like, hey, by the way, this isn't normal. <laughs> like, human beings don't operate like this. You know, I'm not, you're not supposed to judge how people look, but uh, he doesn't, he, he wasn't meant to be a buff guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just shows you that, like, not, we're not all supposed to have the exact same body types. Yeah. Looking forward to that movie, though. One of the few superhero movies I'm looking forward to. Chloe Zhao, I still believe in you. Hopefully this episode's out before that movie. Yeah, well, that movie won't be out for, like, hopefully. Holy shit. Um, We're not even a fourth of the way through Happy Amblin, people. (laughs) No, we can do this. We can do it. I believe in us. We're we're rising. The Close Encounters episode hasn't even dropped yet. I know, I'm fucking... You know who I really liked in this? Uh, Joe Beth Williams as the mom. Oh yeah, she's I, great. I really liked her in this. Yeah, where she's just like she's first of all she just like plays a very good like mom, but also ha- like when she starts noticing the poltergeist activity, she immediately jumps in the problem solving mode and is doing like uh-huh, actual yeah, like there's a genuine like mystery thrill going yeah. on here. But it's like first it's like, you know, she's having fun with it where she's like she has like genuine interest in it, whereas uh Craig T. Nelson is very much like father knows best, but is also like the most out of his depth of any of the characters. Oh, completely. Like after uh the daughter goes missing and he just has these sunken eyes. Yeah, he's just like the defeated man. Which not to get into like uh gender politics or anything, but I've seen a lot of families when they go through like crisis. That seems to be the case. <laughs> Where, like, the mother, like, rises to the occasion, and the father's like, I am not prepared for this. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. I, I think it's, um... Spielberg's smart enough to recognize that the, the family dynamic, you know, like, the, the portrait of, like, the classic American nuclear family is that the father knows best. He understands that that's not always the case, and I think that also makes his movies more interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I should also mention another moment where this movie like like edges on satire. Um, there's a scene early on where the parents are smoking pot <laughs> in the bedroom, and the camera's doing like a slow like uh, pan around the room, 
and we slowly reveal that the father's reading a book about Ronald Reagan. <laughs> it's like the man, the legend, Ronald Reagan. And it's like, whoa, hey. <laughs> that feels like a Hooper choice. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, Spielberg's never got to, like, even, like... It, it, as far as we can tell... Politics do not exist in the Steven Spielberg universe. <laughs> not that his films aren't political. It's just like there's never even a mention of like political philosophy. Yeah, it's always like moral philosophy. Like the only but... yeah, the only time it's ever happened is in like Lincoln, <laughs> and then like even his movie about the Nixon administration feels oddly like it's trying to be apolitical. <laughs> Yeah. Which, you know, that might be one of the problems with that movie, but that's like a year from now, so. Yeah, yeah he, he's a very, not even cut and dry, but he's very simple with his, uh, like, film quandaries, I guess. Like, the the obstacles that will come up in uh, his character's ways, you know? Yeah. And, like, on the path that they have to tra- traverse. Well, he understands that, like, the thing that's going to keep us invested in this movie is that we're going to care about what happens to this family. So let's make it about their struggles and triumphs. And this movie, I think more than any Spielberg film, and maybe that's the Tobe Hooper element, where there's like this underlying story of like corporate real estate and like encroaching technology <laughs> and just like how like we, we are, like even from the afterlife you can't escape. <laughs> From some of the machinations of American society. Like, it's all very much, like, subtext, but you never get that in other Spielberg movies. Like, the closest you kind of get is, like, and this is not supernatural, but it might as well be, uh, Jaws. Just, yeah. Just because of, like, the, the confines of, like, Amity Island and, like, uh, the mayor so insistent on, like, keeping the capitalist machine, like, turning. Yeah, but that's even, you know? even in that instance, it's much more akin to, like, the guy in the monster movie who's like, there is no monster. Oh, yeah, no, no, totally. Um, but it, it is, like, one of the big, like, conflicts of the film. And, of course, there's always elements of it in his, like, I mean, like, you know, Close Encounters has the government cover-up, which is, like, 70s paranoia. Mm-hmm. But it's never, like, it, like, you can tell that Spielberg's never making his movie about that. Yeah, and, and Poltergeist, that's that's the climax of the film, you know, the... the Don't let move the headstones! Yeah. <laughs> oh, fucking Craig T. Nelson just owns that shit. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, that like that imagery of, like, just, just to, like, hop there for a second, of, like, the literal corpses shooting out of the ground yeah. of American suburbia, like, that's... Fucking amazing. Well, everyone talks about Poltergeist. I mean, everyone talks about The Shining and being like, hey, the movie's actually about genocide. <laughs> yeah, stuff like and this that. is like literally... And this is like the more overt version of that. Like, which I'm not even like, I'm not even saying that as a criticism. Like, Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, this is not really a subtle film either, but that's just like strength too. I mean, that's where you get the whole setup with the old tree where like you even get like, like little moments of dialogue where he's like, yep, the tree was here from before we even built the neighborhood. It's old and wise. And then the tree comes in and like eats your child. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, oh, there's a, there's this great instance what I, I didn't, definitely did not catch the first time I ever saw it. And I, I didn't even watch this until like college, honestly. Mm-hmm. But um, on this rewatch, like the lightning starts and you're in the little boy's room and the lightning like shines the silhouette of the tree yeah. against the wall. 
and it looks like a scary monster. And I was like, oh, shit, that's really cool. I didn't catch these things before. And there's a lot of little moments of that in this movie. Kind of like fun to tee up like some of the scares. I would say the thing that stops this from being scary for me now as an adult is that the horror set pieces are so big. Like, the tree literally, like, reaches in the room and grabs the kid. Yeah, yeah. It, it's basically the Whomping Willow. <laughs> yeah, which is like, you know, it's fun, but it's not scary. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where this movie kind of loses the horror audience. Where it's like, you know, there's that horror audience that, like, they want to be scared or they want the movie to be, like, hardcore. Yeah, I, I could see that. But you know what? So I've been spending a lot of time uh, with my grandpa, and he has a ranch out um, past L.A. County, past the valley. And uh, and he, he can't really take care of himself, you know, so people kind of take shifts in the family and yada yada. Um, but at that ranch, there's a lot of, like, open landscapes, and but there's also a lot of trees around, like, uh, the ranch that he owns. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, in these, like, open valleys... Uh, when it's really windy, there's a lot of noises you hear at night, and they can't always be explained away <laughs> by your uh, no. I mean, I your sleepy mind. <laughs> my dad was very insistent on living near trees. It's always <laughs> his big thing. He likes being near nature, um, for whatever mm. reason. He seems to have no pleasure in nature, but <laughs> he he like demands <laughs> to live near it. And uh, there were a lot of... Uh, so he can conquer it. Yeah, well, there was a lot of, uh, you know, we were, like, just on, like, a small forest in my neighborhood. Even though I lived in a cul-de-sac, like, the backyard, it was like, you walk into the woods a little bit, it feels like Bigfoot country. And that that was scary as a kid. I'm not saying, like, the fear of the tree is, like, unrealistic. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that the the tree in this movie, when it, it looks like a monster tree... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like it's Okay, yeah, I, I could see that. It's not like a subtle thing in any way. Which again, it's like it's more of just like a fun scare, but then an actual scare. But that like mm-hmm. big attack, like that's when of course like Carol Ann gets sucked into another dimension. Yeah. Which is also I think that's the moment where you're either with the film or not, because that's what the movie's gonna be about. And mm-hmm. I think some people aren't willing to make that leap to that being the storyline. And I, I guess I kind of get it. I mean, that's honestly, well, like for... with all those Conjuring films, there's always, like, that moment where, like, the plot really kicks in, and they never make that. Like, I can never make that leap with any of them. Okay, yeah. I, I, I can I can respect that. Like, there maybe is a good setup, but then once the paranormal investigators are brought in, once it's like, alright, we have to f- solve the problem of this haunted house, is, like, the moment where I'm like, alright, that's boring. <laughs> and here it works for me. For whatever reason. Here, you know what? I think here's a big difference. Because I am a fan of most of the Conjuring movies, even though I hate that I just refer to them as the Conjuring movies, <laughs> too. Like, I got beef, don't worry. Um, like, I'm never watching that uh, La Llorona movie, because that just, like, good lord. Um, <laughs> I could just I could just tell they fucked it up so bad, just from, like, that one trailer. But anyways. Did uh, anyone see that movie? Here, Apparently not, mm. but they gave him the third Conjuring movie, so who fucking... What What do I know? Um, but anyways, I think the difference here in Poltergeist is that it's the family dynamic that's at the forefront of it. Yeah. Still. Like, it's still about those characters. Like, because when the investigators come in, uh, even the even when it's played by, like, great actress Lynn Shea, mm-hmm. you know, like, Insidious and shit, you know? Like, they kind of overtake the movie, and it becomes about, like, the procedural aspect... 
as opposed to the family dynamic. Like, they kind of try to weave it back in. Like, I'm a big fan of the first Insidious. I think that's a really great Haunted House movie. That one kind of loses a thread for a moment when Lin Shea comes into the picture. And then at the end, then it's like, oh, it's, it's the relationship between the father and the son and the family unit again, even though it's still basically the father and son. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, it's still about every member of the family trying to get the daughter back. There's still, like... There's there's more of that focus here. It doesn't lose any threads, basically. Yeah, I'm just I I honestly don't know what makes the follow through work here. Maybe it's just because we did spend so much time with the family, and that other than that opening, like nothing scary really happens until like there's like the chair scene, where which is actually a really uh, good little like scare moment with uh, the chairs being stacked on top of each other. The paranormal investigators are actually kind of fun, which is, like, never the case in these type of movies. Yeah, like, I mean, I just went on a whole rant about it, but, like, yeah. You know what I think, you know what, here's what I think makes them work. Whenever these paranormal investigators come in in these movies, there's always that thing of, like, crazy shit has gone down, but, like, one of the family members is still, like, I don't believe in no ghosts. (laughs) And, like, has to be the skeptic, and then the paranormal investigators come in and be like, Oh ho ho! You clearly, you clearly have to just believe in the spirits, which is never fun. Mm-hmm. And it's also like then they do that Einstein quote where it's like they misunderstand Einstein, where he's like Einstein said science couldn't prove everything. Whereas this movie's like, no, actually, we are gonna kind of take a scientific approach to it. But your daughter's soul is also in the television. Yeah, it's just, but it's like in this movie, it's like we're just gonna be like souls are like an actual scientific thing (laughs) like we're maybe not going to go into the philosophical implications of that but we're going to treat it like a weighty object instead of just asking you to nebulously believe in this concept of the soul yeah and honestly that kind of feels like a lot of missed opportunities in horror films because this is still pretty rare i can't think of another modern horror film that treats it similarly. You know what movie does it really well, which is going to be odd when I say the title? Okay. Paranormal Activity. Oh, um, I like those first three a lot. Yeah, but the, go ahead. But the first one, um, remember, like, they want to bring the psychic in and the boyfriend's already filming everything? Yeah. And he's, like, mocking the fact that the psychic is, like, a little bit late. And, like, he's like, yeah, this is bullshit, but I'm going to videotape. And the moment he catches something on film that, like, you can't explain... He's like, nope, I think there's something up. <laughs> like, the moment that happens, he totally switches gears. <laughs> and it's like, that's appropriate. Like, it's appropriate to be skeptical at the start, and then the problem with these movies is that, like, the skeptic will be skeptical, like, way past the point of reason. <laughs> like, a person's head will explode and a monster will crawl out, and they'll be like, I still think there's a logical explanation to this. Yeah. There's uh, a couple things I want to I wanna bring up. Uh, Fright Night Part 2. It has to mm. be that thing where it's a sequel where it's like, we have to do the first movie again because it's cheaper, but also let's have a little more fun with it by flipping the premise on its head where it's the main protagonist who's skeptical now. And there's like a genuine, like hilarious catharsis to when the reveal finally happens. Um, very underrated film. I've, I've recommended it a bunch of times. It's one recommended again. And I want to say that the Paranormal Activity movies, if you haven't seen them, I'd recommend the first one. I'd recommend the ending of the second one, and then the third oh, yeah, one that's... is like legitimately great. <laughs> that second one has a hell of an ending. Yeah, like it's that movie it's doesn't make solid. any sense. That movie doesn't make any sense because you don't put security cameras to film yourself. 
Yeah, yeah, but that ending's wow. Yeah, that ending is really terrific. Mm. Um, and that was like where they were cleverly like every movie was like a prequel and not a sequel. Like they like it was like a trick on you, like which I thought was a cool premise. Yeah, like they do something where like they reveal the date it takes place, and you're like start counting down the moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so once it gets to the end, it's great. Um, that third one I think is really special. I don't think it ever got its credit. I really yeah. like that third one a lot. Can someone find another thing throughout there? Can someone find that poster for Paranormal Activity Three where like there was it was just like a very static picture, but then. They just put, like, a critic's, like, entire review on the bottom of it. <laughs> what? There was, like, some critic was like, look, I haven't liked these movies, and I don't get scared at horror movies, and this movie terrified me. <laughs> <laughs> and they, like, put, like, the whole review, like, on the poster. Oh, that's amazing. That feels like an Ebert thing. <laughs> yeah. That, that kind of does, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so curious. I'm gonna... For the YouTube version, I'm going to find that and put it on here because that's so funny. I haven't been able to find it. Like, I don't know what to search for it. Like, I look up Paranormal Activity 3 poster and I just get the poster. I'm going to check the MySpace page because I bet there's something on there. Yeah, yeah. And it might not even have been a poster. I think it might have been one of those, like, cardboard cutouts, you know? Oh, okay, Um, okay, okay, yeah. So, but, yeah, that that was a moment. Uh, but this is we get a lot of big special effects moments with the paranormal investigators. I think that one scene with the room is maybe like not my favorite. Oh, okay. The t- like the tie fighter makes tie fighter noises. <laughs> like that's it's, like uh, it's goofy. It's where it goes like straight up goofy. Yeah, and it's of like, course where like the, the lamp punch connects in front mm-hmm. of their faces. I'm like okay, <laughs> which that effect isn't like doesn't hold up super well. But the the way they did the light actually turning on it's actually pretty good yeah like it's inherently dated just because you could tell it's like that weird uh composite shit but um all things considered i for the time that's like to me that would have been mind-blowing like if i saw that as a kid you know yeah um, yeah like now like yeah of course it's nothing but um well i think these like big special effects moments have always been kind because of, spielberg has like allegedly like always wanted to go back to horror and like never fully has like, War of the Worlds is kind of a horror film, but that's, like, the closest he's gotten. Yeah. And that's well, The Shining. Also... The Shining what? sequence. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, was, I was like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, no, 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 that's, well, like, a genuinely thrilling moment. Yeah, yeah, but it's also, like, he's just doing, he's just doing The Shining. Well, he's doing The Shining, like, on monster energy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... The Shining sequence in Ready Player One is better than the Return to the Overlook in Doctor Sleep. Anyway, holy fuck! Um, for years he was trying to get something with uh, Stephen King made. Uh, I believe Spielberg came very close to doing The Talisman, which is more of like a fantasy adventure horror film. I mean, horror book um, that has never been adapted. And uh, he's also they, they were working on, like, a haunted house script in, like, the late 90s. And according to Spielberg, uh, according to King, he wanted more horror, and Spielberg wanted more, like, set pieces. Mm. And so then they ended up just being like, let's not do this. <laughs> and I think some of the notes from that got turned into uh, Rose Red, which is Stephen King's, like, 
hey, remember how I did The Shining? Here's that again. <laughs> but it's more, but it's even closer to The Haunting. Oh, okay. I, I'm unfamiliar with that one, actually. You don't need to see it. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a miniseries he did. And you know, I'm actually kind of glad because I feel like Spielberg and King would kind of lean into their worst tendencies together. Yeah. And maybe that's for the best. I don't know, but like to me, the best Stephen King works are when the director's voice dominates his material. Because mm-hmm. you can't... like The only guy that can do Stephen King adaptations straight is Frank Darabont. Oh, yeah. Like, for some reason, he knows like the exact right tone to translate the work into film. But any other director, it's like... It has to either become like a John Carpenter film or a David Cronenberg film for it to still work. <laughs> oh god, I just want to talk about the mist now. Oh yeah, the mist is great. Oh. It's crazy to think the only thing in it that wasn't King's idea is that ending. <laughs> which is like nuts. It's so good. But yeah. That feels like a, a Stephen King ending that like every studio would be like, Yeah, we can't do this. What studio agreed to that? I have no idea, but... Let's give kudos. Let me look it up. I don't think it's a mistake that Frank Darabont hasn't directed a movie since, is all I'm saying. Yeah, well, it wasn't a big hit, but let's give kudos to whatever... Uh... Oh, no! It was released by Dimension Films. Oh! Founded by Bob Weinstein. Oh! <laughs> no kudos, no kudos. No kudos, no! The anti-kudos. Anti, no, bad... Bad Weinstein. <laughs> Fuck. Well, that could in a way, not have turned out worse. In a way, it worked out because the movie <laughs> underperformed for him. Oh shit! <laughs> God, maybe that's what made him be like, "No, you can't end Snowpiercer like that." Yeah, this Poltergeist, good movie, underrated, underrated. I would argue. Yeah, it's weird because it does occupy this space as like a classic film. But it's, like, in weird circles. It's not, like, a unanimous thing. Like, like people know of Poltergeist. Like, my mom knows of Poltergeist, and she does not like horror movies. Like, she just can't... She can't deal with them. But she knows about Poltergeist. And it has the reputation of being a scary movie unless you're, like, a diehard horror fan. Then you understand that it's not, like, that scary of a movie. So, I, I don't know. It's a weird space that occupies in, in like, pop culture. It exists in just, it, yeah, I think you're right where it's in this weird, like, it's got, like, its feet in both worlds. And I don't think it was, like, it was never fully embraced by the horror community, as much of it being, but it is that movie where, like, your babysitter would talk about how Poltergeist really scared him as a kid. <laughs> like, where, like, you're like, you have, so, or you know someone who's afraid of clowns, and you're like, why are you afraid of clowns? And it's like, because of Poltergeist. <laughs> and then you watch that scene, and it's, like, not that scary. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're a kid... That's probably one of the scariest things you've seen up to that point. <laughs> oh, yeah. If I was a kid and I saw this, that would have just fucking broken my brain. <laughs> but it's like, as an adult, you watch it and, like, the like the clown, like, gets snake arms. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, it, like, laughs, which, like, you're like, what's the logic here? Like, there's a lot of moments in this where it's like the logic doesn't totally add up. Mm-hmm. But it's still very um, engaging. I got, as, You know what? Before we go, I really want to talk about the whole, like, Zelda Rubenstein sequence. Okay, okay. Which I just love. Like, it, to me, in a subtler film, I would have saved all the big special effects moments for that. It's like, go into the light, all are welcome. 
that like camera move right there <laughs> with the shadow of like Craig T. Nelson, that's like great shit. Yeah. And that's like the one like really funny line in the movie. Uh where she's like let me go like the mother's like, let me do this and so the room she's like, You've never done this before and she's like, Neither of you <laughs> Like, You're right, you go <laughs> Which is pretty funny. <laughs> I like that because you don't really know what's happening, and the movie's like, like the movie is like deliberately not explaining it. Mm-hmm. So you're like really off center the whole time. It's like, like when Zelda Rubenstein just starts like yelling about going into the light, you're like, wait, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it plays it like it's not cheeky about it though either. Like you're just where the characters are, and everyone's just like, it's almost like leaps of faith. For the characters, yeah, but it's not like building up to the leaps of faith either, mm-hmm. and it's not like isn't this weird? You know, it's just like everyone's trying to survive. But it's not like leaps of faith in like a the only way this will work is if you believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that either. It, Everyone it's... just kind of has to go with the flow in a weird way. It's yeah, not like it's a like, weird way of describing this, but that's basically what happens. Yeah, and well, it's, it's about, like, learning this new world you've suddenly entered. Mm-hmm. Like, that you have to actually, it's actually, there is a Twilight Zone episode that is, like, basically this plot. <sighs> it's called, like, Little Girl Lost or something. And it's about, like, people in a house, like, a girl's gone into, like, a parallel dimension, and they can't find her, so, like, they're, like, literally, like, writing equations on the wall. And doing tests to be like, here's where one portal is, and here's where one portal exits. And, like, how does time change between them? And so, like, that's where it's, like, it's it becomes, like, a problem-solving movie. And I think that's where it really works. Because, because again, it's a problem-solving movie that slowly reveals this mystery of, oh, the real estate company, they, they did just move the headstones. <laughs> there really are a bunch of dead bodies under here. <laughs> And you know, there's actually a little bit of foreshadowing with that too. When the uh, the tractor is digging up their backyard and it's mm-hmm. digging up the bird box, yeah. Like this movie has like a lot of quick little foreshadowing moments like that in the front half that I yeah. didn't ever pick up on. And that bird, it's kind of implied that the bird is like that's like the thing that sets the whole thing off. That putting the burying the bird there is like what tips the scale and the letting the ghosts out. You know? I didn't think about that, but I, I kind of like that reading. It's also, like, there's a lot with, like, the electrical storms, like, because, like, there's, for somehow, like, the, the alien, I mean, I keep wanting to call them aliens for some reason. The nice ghosts guys. are, yeah, yeah, the ghosts are, like, communicating through the electricity, which becomes, mm-hmm. like, a recurring thing. And that's, like, a, it's a really, now it's something that, like, you just don't have because no one really has, like, static televisions anymore. Yeah. But the idea that that static is actually ghosts... That's a pretty neat idea. Mm-hmm. Not uh, examined very well in the movie White Noise, starring oh. Michael Keaton. Oh, isn't that a remake? Is it? I don't know. Let me check. I, I might be thinking of something else. Um, Let me see. Regardless, it is just not good. Uh... I think that movie's more about EVPs. Okay. Which is no, it is not. Oh, it is not a remake. What is it? What the fuck? What am I thinking well, of? Did they remake White Noise? It might have. That sounds like something that would happen. No. But 
Yeah, there's a lot of stuff with, like, light in this that I find real, like, just, like, the use of lighting, but also, like, the recurring theme of, like, electricity. I mean, it's even that one scene where they're standing on the guy's porch, and I can't tell if it's implying that, like, because their house is haunted, they're being attacked by bugs, or if it's literally the dude's light that's attracting the bugs. I, I would say that it's, it's probably, like, supposed to be implied, like, that it's it's about the haunting that's that's happening. Yeah, but the haunting is the light. Huh. Like, your light, like, the light is, and there's all this talk of, like, the light and go into the light and that they're being pulled between the two lights. And then there's the very, like, casually thrown out there that the reason why Carol Ann, the little girl, is the one that gets sucked in this other dimension and is the force that all these, like, ghosts are, like, being attracted to is because she was born in the house. It's, like, one line thrown out there and never really examined. Hmm. But it's a it's a moment where it's like, oh, that's why she's got, like, this extra thing going on. Yes. It's like, Manifest Destiny is polluting the afterlife now. <laughs> I mean, hey, that's a fucking hell of a statement, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, I was praising it earlier, but, like, that ending is so fucking, like... Yeah. I'm in love with just how balls to the walls that ending becomes. Yeah. With the graves popping out of the ground, the house imploding on itself. You only moved the headstones, son! Like, oh my it's god, it's so good. Because yeah. also an ending where it's like, because the, the, we'll get into the sequels in a minute because I do want to talk about them. But that, it's kind of like the ending where it's like, oh, now this real estate company's not going to be able to cover up what happened here. Uh-huh. <laughs> but there's that great moment where the guy is like up on the hill and he's like, he's like, yeah, you know, the father's like, yeah, it was great, you know, when we first got the house, but now it's like a valley, and we're in the middle of it. He's like, well, how about we move you out here? <laughs> and it's like, that's like the American mindset in a nutshell. Yeah. Where we just, like, keep moving to different places and abandoning the old places. <laughs> but you, you just, you can't just move the headstones. You can't just wash over America's past. Poltergeist. <laughs> You son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies, and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! This movie, uh, the one thing, this the movie never really examines what, because there, there's this talk of how there's a beast in this other dimension, and we never really learn what that is. Yeah, it's almost like a like a tangential thing, you know? Yeah. Even though it's kind of made into a bigger thing almost. Like well, I the, think the... it's like almost meant to be like an, an inhuman thing that has been brought about by what the events going on here. Mm-hmm. Like, you shouldn't see it as real. But the sequel, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, um, I believe it's revealed that underneath... The cemetery that was uh, that they didn't move the he- that they didn't move the bodies. Um, there's there was another there was a burial um, ground, not like an, not an Indian burial ground. Although I do like that this movie makes a very clear line, being like that we're they're basically playing off the Indian burial ground idea, um, just to bring it back to the whole idea of America. Yeah. Um, but this one reveals that there was a cult leader 
that like uh, Jim Jones type that had a bunch of followers and led them into the desert and they all died in like this hole and he's the malevolent spirit oh okay so like he like that this this force is like was deliberately trying to keep uh, these forces trapped here Mm -hmm. Um, not really sure how I feel about that but hey yeah. For some reason, H.R. Giger designed some of the creatures in the second one. Whoa, really? Uh, does it, don't get excited because there, there's barely anything in it. Mm. There's like a scene where like Craig T. Nelson like vomits something, and I don't know. I, that movie, if there are interesting creatures in it, I do not remember them. Oh, that's too bad. But... Uh, and then uh, Poltergeist Three takes place in like Chicago. Yeah, they're all, like, different, like, Americana settings, right? Like, the first one's a suburbs, and the second one is, like, somewhere else? Yeah, well, the second one is still, like, suburbs. Oh, okay. Um, But then the third one's like, what if we took it to the city? And they filmed it in the John Hancock building, the Chicago John Hancock building. Mm-hmm. Um, which I believe there's, like, something weird about that where it's, like... Like, the movie's, like, on, like, 666th Street or something like that. There's something with, like, 666 associated with that building. Oh. Because this is where, just, like, for people who are curious, there's, like, the infamous poltergeist curse that hangs over these movies. Um, Which is because, I mean, a lot of the people involved in these movies have met unfortunate circumstances in life um Dominique Dunn who played the older daughter who's like not really a force in this film she doesn't really get a lot to do yeah uh she's she's the one who shows at the end of the movie and like screams a lot um she was murdered by an ex-boyfriend uh and the story that goes with that is she was practicing lines for I forget what movie. She was supposed to be an upcoming movie, so she had someone over who they were doing lines together. Like, not like drug lines, I mean like screenplay lines. And uh, then her ex-boyfriend came over and she went out to confront him. And that whatever fight broke out, whatever happened that led to her murder, the the person she was with didn't hear it because he was listening to the Poltergeist soundtrack to drown out their arguing. Uh, which I don't know if that's actually true. That's just the story you hear, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds a lot more unfortunate than maybe the person heard exactly what was happening and didn't go out there. Um, which, you know, happens in life. Yeah. We're going to end on a real downer. I apologize, everyone. Yeah. <sighs> Um, the other is that like two of the people involved in Poltergeist 2 like died shortly after making it um, like Will Sampson died like right after filming it Will Sampson um, who you might know from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest he was chief oh yeah yeah and he, so he plays like the that's a weird one where he's like kind of like a mystical Indian figure in that movie but like there isn't like Indian magic in it, really. <laughs> and then the guy who played the crazy cult leader also died, like, before that movie even came out. Uh, but that's one where it was like he was diagnosed with cancer, like, before filming even began. 
Oh, okay, so like, okay. So, like, well, everyone filming it, like, knew this was going to be his last movie. And that guy gives a, he gives a crazy good performance in it. Like, he's, like, the reason to see Poltergeist, too. And there's not much else this reason to watch it. But uh, the other story is that um, this is where it gets weird, because I've heard both versions where there were corpses, there were, like, bodies on the sets of these movies. Some people say it was the first film in that pool scene. Other people say it was in the second film, where they, they found out later that it was actual dead bodies that were used. You, you, do you know that one? I do know that, and apparently it is supposed to be... Like, I've heard it in the... That it was the first film, in the pool mm-hmm. scene, with the, the dead bodies coming around um, mm-hmm. Joe Beth Williams, when she's in the pool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I, I did not hear about it possibly being the second film. I remember... This is going to be so... Do not trust anything I'm about to say. <laughs> But uh, I remember watching one of those documentaries about, like, the poltergeist curse, which, like, you're interested in when you're, like, 12. But as an adult, like, you kind of understand how it's, like, really kind of exploitive and shit like that. Um, But they interviewed, like, the whole cast, and they all kind of talked about, like, weird shit that happened to them. And from what I remember, I think Craig T. Nelson said it. Um, that they, it was the set of Poltergeist 2 that had the real bodies. And that there were all these, like, problems while filming. And according to him, I think, I could be totally wrong, (laughs) Will Sampson was the one who said that he was, he felt something negative coming from the bodies, and that's when they realized they were real dead bodies. And that Will Sampson, like, did something on the set to, like, purge evil spirits. Now, Will Sampson is not around to tell his side of the story. <laughs> so, who knows? Because, like, you know, that's where you're getting into, like, Indian mysticism and stuff like that. Yeah, we're not trying to be Stephen King or anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and... So I don't want to go into, like, too much of that, but that was something that was happening. And I, I do know for fact Craig T. Nelson told a story about going to visit Will Sampson's grave. And there was, like, talking to him, and he said that there was crickets at the moment he, like, addressed Will Sampson, like, trying to talk to him. Like, you know, like how some people do at graves. Mm-hmm. That all the crickets went silent. That was his big story. Oh. Ooh. Spooky. Uh, spooky. Um, and of course the other really tragic one is that the production of Poltergeist 3 was like really, uh, difficult and, um, including like, I think they like blew up a set or something while filming it. Like, like there was like one fire, there's like a scene that's on fire and like filming it, like it went out of control and like they almost lost like all the camera equipment. Oh shit. Um, who directed, let me, hold on. Poltergeist 3 was directed by Gary Sherman who um, did the underrated Deathline and Dead and Buried. Those are two movies I really like. Now, I've heard Poltergeist 3... I know you're going to get into some serious stuff for now, but I've heard Poltergeist 3 is actually very good. Like, it just got a re-release from, like, Shout Factory, I think, or Scream Factory. Um, um, I have not seen it since, like, since um, I was a child. Okay, I, I, I basically, I just lately I've been hearing that it's kind of an Alien 3 situation where the hubbub around it is kind of more 
like noted than the actual like film itself. Yeah, so. I think the problem with it is you can tell that they had to work around a lot of the problems, which one of the big problems is that um, the young actress Heather O'Rourke died in the last weeks of production. Um, which, from what I understand, she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and there was something else wrong that was probably, like, that... I'm not sure if she actually had Crohn's disease or if it was this other problem that caused um, a bowel obstruction, which can kill you if you if you have a bowel obstruction. Um, and that's that's what happened with her. Mm. Um, and she, she also doesn't look very... Like, because she was being... I, I have Crohn's disease, and the medication you have to take, especially in the early stages, will fuck your body up. Like, it's just... You have to take immunosuppressive drugs, you have to be put on a lot of steroids, probably... And so her face looks, like, very puffy in that. Um, and then there's, like, very much a part in the movie where you can tell they had more to for her to do, and then her character just disappears from the movie. And so you can tell they had to work around it. Um, but it's, you know, it's very tragic. She was, I mean, she was 12 years old. God, which that's is, heartbreaking. Which is insane. And it's one of those things where it's like, and that's what I mean. If there's any lesson to take away from it, it's not that this fucking film set was cursed, but it's like always get a second opinion. And according to the the legend of this girl, like the stories people talk about her, is that she was always very she wouldn't she was very helpful and very kind to a fault where she wouldn't want to talk about her problems because you know she's a kid, she's on a film set, she's having fun. And like according like according to the mother, the story I heard is that like when she was like the day of her death, she was having problems and like was trying to like force her mother to let her go to school because she didn't. She was like, "No, I'm fine," and she wasn't, of course. And it's important that if you're having those type of problems to reach out, remember that it's, it's your health we're talking about. And as a kid, she probably just didn't understand that. But I know a lot of adults who also have a difficult time understanding that and we also live in a society that doesn't really appreciate when you go hey I'm sick for whatever fucked up reasons we, we don't like we look down on sick people a lot and so that's just encouragement to take take your health seriously and always seek a second opinion especially on, on big things especially and especially if it feels like your treatment isn't working it might just be it takes a while, but it also could be that they have it wrong. And my doctors also had it wrong, and it took me a long time to realize that. So, poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm really I, sorry. The end. No, no, no. I, I think like that was actually um, a, a solid message to end this on. This dispel with the the romanticized mystical bullshit. Just yeah. Honesty. Yeah, well, it's also why, I mean, I think that's the strength of this movie is that it treats itself very seriously in a way that these other bullshit, based on a true story, Haunted House movies never do. And those movies are always exploiting something where if you look into it, they're always exploiting, like, con artists or people who had, like, mental or physical health problems that were, like, treated as ghost situations. And 
when when you have these people that just cash in on these ghost stories that aren't true, it's it's really infuriating because there are human beings at the heart of it that are usually being exploited. And that's why I have a moral problem with movies that claim to be based on true stories that are not. A lot of movies I could mention. Yeah. Figured. A lot of them. Um, oh, what's my favorite one? Hold on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going to dunk on a guy when he's down, which isn't fair. Oh, I know what you're going to say now. Yeah, I know. You know what I'm going to say. Um, but Deliver Us From Evil, um, the Scott Derrickson film might be my least favorite example of this. Because first of all, Scott Derrickson did another film based on a true story called The Exorcism of Heavenly Rose, which tries to have its cake and eat it too, where it's like, hey, it's based on a true story, but we're never going to figure out if she really was, um, if, if she really was possessed by a demon, which she was not, because <laughs> demons aren't real. Um, or if she was like a health case that turned into like an unfortunate girl's death. Like it tries to ride that line. I feel like it leans too much into the supernatural there, where it's like, it, it has a smart idea where both options are terrifying, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it really being a demon is scary because then, holy shit, demons are real. But then also, if it wasn't, then the, the belief in demons got that girl killed. Which is just as scary. And then he does this fucking movie, Deliver Us from Evil, which is like, even if you look in the true story, it is not even close to being based on anything real. They took like seven different stories and like strung them together. Some of which are true, some of which are completely fictional. And he tried to make like a buddy cop horror film. And he also basically said that like, hey, that movie made $87 million and it wouldn't have done that if it hadn't have said based on a true story on the poster. And you know, that bugs me. And I think it should bug more people, frankly. Because movies are movies. They're not, they're not real. Like, it'd be like if Spielberg, like, tried to make a movie out of that actual case and tried to present it as, like, a real thing. And it's like, that's gross, man. I think there's an ethical problem there that needs to be brought up more. And it's kind of shocking that you, of all people, are the only one that kind of brings it up. Yeah, well, now, I think I'm more vocal about it now because now Ed and Lorraine Warren have been, like, deified as, like, actual, like, scientists... And it's like they were very much not that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just read about the Amity case. I mean, just I'm not going to say anything. Just like read, like do the bare minimum of research. And like that's like that's the just. And I mean, I'm being a little a bit of a dick here because that's the justification a lot of these filmmakers go in with. Like it's like, hey, you know, if you want to know the true story, look it up. And it's like you're not playing. You know, you're not changing a true story for dramatic tension. You are doing things that you on some level have to know isn't true. And presenting them as fact. And that's where I have a problem with it. So I'm not upset about Sam Raimi now directing Doctor Strange 2. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Matt, thanks for joining me on this episode of Poltergeist. The one episode of uh, Happy Amblin that will not star Adam Sandler or be directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> well, no, there will be one more. 
Oh, I actually don't remember which one. So I'm going to leave um, that as a surprise. All, all I need to say is you will, you will remember that they are good enough. Yeah, I don't someone out Someone out there got it. All right, all right. Well, I'll see eventually. Yep. Uh, Matt, where can the people find you? If you want more complete downers and self-righteous ramblings like I just ended this episode with, follow me at EmperorOTN1 at Twitter.com. By the way, I looked up your old Twitter account at EmperorOTN. I suspended. Do you want to talk about that or... Um, no, it's not suspended. I don't know what's happening. Oh, okay. Well, huh. All right, no, let, all right let me say what happened. Poltergeist. It knows what scares you. And you can follow me on Twitter at a normal Twitter account at the Diego Crespo. Check out the Waffle Press on Twitter, YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, of course. Less YouTube. Uh, check out SoundCloud more, honestly. Oh, yes, get, get off the YouTube. Yeah, it's, you, YouTube's really, really uh, effing fucking, me in the bee. They're fucking us over. Yeah, so... They're fucking Shannon Strucy over. Yeah! Which, Re- this release... episode could come out, like, six months from now, and I'm willing to bet they still will not have fixed her problem with her paranormal... I mean, paranormal. Parasocial relationships video. Yeah, re-release fake friends too, you fucking assholes. Fucking um, morons. I'm I'm like five five minutes away. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I'm like on the edge of just driving to the YouTube headquarters and just standing outside of it and yelling. I actually know I where the arrested. YouTube headquarters are in, in Southern Let's California. Let's go! So I Let's guess go. I'm going. <laughs> Knocking down some doors, motherfuckers. You think they built the YouTube headquarters over a cemetery? <laughs> Actually, yeah, that would not surprise me in the slightest. That would explain a lot. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We have been professionally unprofessional.